Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Kraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we have the awesome privilege to take up this great topic of theology of the body. I will be flying solo today. Um, again, if you have any questions, please do not hesitate to email me at jholljmj at yahoo.com, or you can just go ahead and go to my website at joholcraft.org and hit the contact link there, and you can send your email on the way. I love to hear from you, your questions, observations, comments, conversation starters, huh? <laughs> I always do enjoy them. And I, I do because it really gives me a sense of how to make this program better, just not on theology of the body, but each night as we look at the various aspects of our faith. You know, on Monday, it's lay witness. On Tuesday, we take up church history. On Wednesday, we look at Pope Francis. Of course, Thursdays, I'm here with you uh, to take up theology of the body. And then on Friday, we take stock into the gospel that we will hear on Sunday. So we try to diversify uh, our subject matter for our audience, and I'm always looking to hear from you to get some more feedback on that. Now, theology of the body. Where are we at? Well, we are in chapter 5 of the book, The Love That Satisfies. And if you are a faithful listener, you know well that The Love That Satisfies is a series of reflections to the first half of Benedict XVI's encyclical, God is Love, Deus Caritas Est, where he looks at the relationship between eros and agape, eros, that human erotic love, and agape, that divine sacrificial love. So he spends uh, chapters engaging what these look like based upon just not Benedict's reflections, but certainly John Paul II's larger theology of the body. So this is what we've been about. I've had guests joining me, Chris Seibert, uh, Ivan Mora. He will no longer be joining me on this radio program because he has joined the seminary to study for the priesthood for the Sacramento Diocese, so we continue to pray for him. Ivan, if you're listening, Godspeed to you. Uh, anyhow, yeah, and uh, I'll have guests here in the future. Tonight, I am solo. We are in chapter 5. We're going to wrap up chapter 5, hopefully, and if we have time, get into chapter 6. But before I get into chapter 5, I thought it would be good. Uh, we would be well served to reflect upon how we think about time. You know, today in this evening's program, uh, you will hear a word that Benedict XVI uses, dimension, okay? And he speaks to it within the context of a new dimension in Christ's love. But it really got me thinking about the incarnation, God becoming man, uh, God <laughs> uh, assuming the flesh, if you will, in history and how it reveals to us the potential of our humanity. That let's talk a little bit about time. So let us turn our attention to the book of Genesis, because in the book of Genesis, we have the key that unlocks how to better understand time. And it's found in the Hebrew word for day, 
Okay, Yom is the Hebrew word for day. We've probably heard the phrase Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. Well, what does the word day mean? Well, St. Augustine says this, it is not uh, something quantitative. It is not something measured by clocks. It is something measured by purpose. It is more about something created for a purpose. This makes sense in light of how we are to understand man's time in light of God's time. Man's time is what? Chronos, chronology, that which we think of in a linear context. God's time is kairos or chirology, grace time, what belongs to the vertical, if you will. Chronos intersects kairos and kairos intersects chronos, and it comes in the form of a cross. Huh? Chronos is the time we put into our iPads and iPhones, regulated by the 24-hour day, 7-day week, and 365-day year. Kairos, on the other hand, is the appointed time in the purpose of God. And ultimately, we can say it is in our faith journey of prayer that Kronos can only be understood in the light of Kairos, as our timelines can only be understood in the light of what makes BCE, before Common Era, and CE, Common Era, possible Christ, huh? I'll never forget the day my history professor over at Cal State University, Chico, uh, walked into the room. He says, I have an announcement to make. We're all kind of looking at each other. I'm like, okay, you know, we weren't sure what to expect. And he, he proceeded to explain why our timelines were no longer going to have BC and AD, but now BCE and CE. So it was no longer going to be before Christ and Anno Domini, AD, year of our Lord. It was going to be before Common Era and Common Era. As if this changed something. There is still a person who entered into history that gives shape and form to BCE and CE. We try in our secular culture to remove God, but the harder we try, the more we reveal the absolute nature of God. Isn't it a fascinating truth? So here we have Kronos and Kairos. Huh? And we are made to see how prayer opens us up to Kairos and begins to form and inform Kronos, ordering it to its proper, dare I say, dimension. Okay, we're going to get into this word later. Not as an end in itself, but a means to an end. Kairos, not Kronos, is to order our day. Now, we have the tendency to be preoccupied with things outside of our control. And its consequences, we get bogged down by what? Well, Kronos. <laughs> what does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Not to worry. Do not get anxious about what tomorrow brings, but let the day's worries be sufficient for the day. We are a culture that is constantly looking into the future, asking the question, what are you going to do next in life? What we forget, my friends, is that God wishes to grace Kronos with Kairos. He wishes to grace our concept of time, the finite, with his time, the infinite. We have to start asking the question, what are we going to do today? Huh? I love to offer up the very practical reflection. 
There are 1,440 minutes in a day. Researchers tell us that we sleep approximately seven hours a day. That leaves us with roughly 1,000 minutes of non-sleep time to eat, work, play, and yes, pray. How many minutes do we spend in prayer? How many minutes do we spend reading scripture? How many minutes do we set aside to actually listen to God? How many minutes do we study up on theology of the body? We need to be praying more so that we might be more aware of the ways in which God is working in our life. We use the phrase, well, I'm just killing time. Oh, if time is given to us as a gift for a purpose, remember the Hebrew word yom, purpose, then maybe we should start using another phrase, huh? Maybe we should stop wasting time. You know, it's a fascinating truth. If you get into the word vanity, right, the Latin word is vanus. It literally translates emptiness, nothingness, or a waste of time. A word that is typically associated with an overindulgence of what we look like points more to how we spend our time and how it's a waste of time. We need to embrace the great gift that time is the one gift that cannot be replaced. It is the preeminent present gift from God the Father. And so we are to embrace this for what it is, mindful that God, from the beginning of time, knew when he was going to enter into time to show us the meaning of love and how in body and soul we can reach the potential of who we are called to be. Amen. Now, <laughs> theology of the body. And we're going to go back to this brief reflection on time, just not in this program, but uh, I have a mind's eye also towards future programs. Okay, so here we are, uh, chapter 5, a chapter that is titled The Meeting of Eros and Agape. Up to this point, what have we talked about? That ultimately, Eros seeks a fulfillment that in all reality, no human being can supply. That God alone is the satisfaction of the heart's desire. Hence, God is the ultimate object of Eros. That at the root of all sexual yearning is really a cry for God. At the root of all desire, we discover our thirst for infinity. And to the degree that we have received and live in the divine gift of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, we desire in turn to be the same gift to others that God has been to us. As Benedict says, <laughs> Eros seeks God and agape passes on the gift received. Okay, here we are, excerpt 34, really wrapping up chapter 5. This is Benedict XVI. Biblical faith does not set up a parallel universe or one opposed to that primordial human phenomenon, which is love, but rather accepts the whole man. It intervenes in his search for love in order to purify it and to reveal new dimensions of it. Okay, so when we follow Christ... Nothing of our true humanity is destroyed. 
suppressed, or as Christopher West puts it, deleted. <laughs> Rather, everything truly human is restored, redeemed, and completed. This, my dear friends, is a cause for great joy. Uh, Chris Seibert and Ivan Moore were in this studio uh, a couple months ago when we initially started The Love That Satisfies, and they shared the first time, as, as did I, we came across theology of the body. And if nothing else, it certainly, for all of us, was a cause for great joy. For this reason, Christ takes nothing of our authentic humanity away from us. It is only Satan, the thief, who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Christ came to give us life and life to the full. So biblical faith intervenes in our search for love in order to guide it towards its true satisfaction. That soundbite review was really explicit to that point. I mean, there are a million and one counterfeit loves on the market. They entice us incessantly, and I dare say convincingly, promising us happiness. But what do they deliver us but disappointment and even despair? We have talked about pornography on this radio program a great deal. I was reading another article today. It had a huge impact upon me. It was about a gentleman in his 40s who had been married for about 15 years. He had a couple of kids a Christian man, devout man, good job, great wife, and he was addicted to pornography. I mean, it was 24-7, and he would lead people to believe that everything was okay. And at first, yes, he talked about how pornography sabotaged all of those eros moments with his wife. But he said something else that really, really struck me. That pornography is much more pervasive than a sabotage of the consummative act with your wife. It touches every aspect of your life. And he used the word kills. It destroys every aspect of your life. And I couldn't agree more. He talked about how he, he was so unable to engage all of the encounters that were usually so life-giving to him. He was left in what? disappointment, and a profound despair. This is Satan. I mean, how often have you heard it said that we must be in the world, but not of it? I mean, biblical faith does not command us to abandon our longings or to, we can say, jump ship into a different parallel universe. Biblical faith opens up the human heart to the satisfaction of its yearnings through the redemption of this world. Christ, again, did not come to condemn the world, but what does that great passage remind us in John 3, 16 and 17? But to save the world. For God created this world, and upon seeing everything that he had made, what did he proclaim? That it was very good. We flounder in this world only because we have lost sight of this great truth, the original goodness and meaning of what God created. God meets us right here, right now, literally coming to earth to redeem us and with us the earth. As we've observed in the past, God comes to us in the things we know best and can verify most 
easily. The things of our everyday life, apart from which we cannot understand ourselves. And what do we know better? What can we verify more easily? What is more everyday than our yearning for love? Apart from what was that phrase that Benedict XVI used, that primordial human phenomenon, which is love? Apart from eros, we cannot understand ourselves. You know, Christians often assert that Jesus is the answer. I remember uh, going to my first retreat, <laughs> and that was the, the title of the retreat, Jesus is the answer. And what I asked 20 years ago, I still ask today. The answer to what? The answer to what? Well, let it be known. The answer to that deep cry of the human heart for love. That cry of the heart that we've called Eros is fulfilled only in union with Christ and his church. That's the Christian proposal in a nutshell. When we allow biblical faith to purify the human search for love, what we discover is an entirely new dimension of satisfaction and fulfillment that is beyond our wildest imaginings. Here we have this word dimension before us we need to reflect upon. A word that when you translate it into Latin means uh, measured. Hmm? We have not measured God's love. If we have not tapped into God's love, we have yet to measure God's love. The paradox is God's love is immeasurable. What have we said about the nature of God being mysterious? Yes, God is love, but this love is rich with mystery. What is the Greek word for mystery? Mysterium, inexhaustible reality. The exciting thing about the Christian and Catholic faith is the deeper that we go into it, the more we come to discover how little we know. And it's an exciting thing because what we can come to know is exciting in and of itself. Imagine experiencing the most profound joy in your life and being told that that is only a foretaste of something so much greater. This is what God is telling us. He says to us, in our eros moments. You are experiencing a profound joy. But what I'm telling you, in my infinite love, that love that is Trinitarian, love given, love received, and love shared, is so much more. I think we would leap for that love. So let's start leaping because it's a truth. This is what Jesus Christ promises us. I mean, my dear friends, when we discover the reason for which God made us male and female and called us to become one flesh from the beginning was to actually share in his very life and love, this is cause for great joy that we get to actually share in what is infinite in the finite, and that this is done most profoundly in the consummative act. Wow. And maybe on that note... Let us turn to chapter 6, a chapter titled God's Eros. Well, doesn't that sound like an oxymoron, huh? I mean, what's the meaning of this? Well, let us take a peek here. Excerpt 35 from Benedict's work, God is Love, reads as follows. The divine power that Aristotle at the height of Greek philosophy sought to grasp does not love. It is solely the object of love. 
the one God in whom Israel believes, on the other hand, loves with a personal love, and his love may certainly be called eros, yet it is also totally agape. Oh, I love that. The one God in whom Israel believes, on the other hand, loves with a personal love. And his love may certainly be called eros, yet it is also totally agape. Mm, This is the wonder and the beauty of when body and soul are united perfectly. So what can we offer up? You know, philosophy can know that God exists. It can even discern certain things about the divine power at the source of existence. But can we conclude without the aid of God's self-revelation, without biblical faith, that God loves? What Benedict is saying here is Aristotle could conclude only that the divine majesty is to be loved. He did not discern that the divine power not only loves, but is love. Remember what I just said about the Trinity. Love given, love received, love shared. God is love. Christ is the fullest revelation of this eternal truth. And Christ came as a bridegroom to give up his body for his bride, the church, and for all humanity. Since the love of a bridegroom for his bride involves eros, what Benedict affirms then is that God's love may certainly be called eros. There is a fascinating truth that comes to us from sacred scripture, from biblical faith. And it's when you take up the historical sense of the word revelation itself. The Greek word for revelation is apocalypsus, right? Where we get the word apocalyptic. It is a word that translates unveiling. And so we usually just think of the word revelation as also meaning unveiling. But what did that word mean to the first century reader? Well, let me tell you what it meant, okay? The apocalypsus for the first century Jew was more about a seven-day affair where uh, the groom's parents would get to know the bride's parents and the families would, would get to know each other. And on the seventh day, there was this great apocalyptic event, this great unveiling. It was when the groom would lift up the bride in a canopy and take her into his tent. And as he would take her into his tent, he would lift the veil, literally speaking. And there was the great apocalypsus, the great unveiling. Just not a veil over the face, but the veil over the body, where two become one. This is the great apocalypse, when two become one. Wow, think about that. This, my friends, brings us back to the cross and the relationship between Christ and his church. Why? Because in the Eucharist, two become one. This is why we can talk about God and Eros. It is the most fascinating thing to think about how Apocalypse and Apocalypsus points to God's Eros, two becoming one. Mm. This, of course, as we've talked about in the past, is beautifully realized in the Eucharist, where Christ enters into a bridal union with our very souls, and he does so in the flesh. Amen. So, again, 
Benedict has a reason to be able to affirm that God's love may certainly be called eros. And is this not a most provocative assertion? Huh? In fact, as a reader of numerous papal documents, we could say, and, and Christopher West says so, and I couldn't agree with him more, this is one of the boldest statements yet. Never, not even John Paul II, has a pope stated so plainly that God's love is not only agape, but eros. Certainly, you see it in innuendo everywhere in John Paul II's Theology of the Body. But Benedict strikes something new with his pen here. I mean, for those familiar with the Bible's erotic imagery, this really shouldn't come as a surprise. I think for some of us, maybe God's love with Eros makes us uncomfortable. We might ask the question, is this not an affront to God? Should we recoil at this? Is this not somehow a degradation of his divinity, an entrapment of God's spirit within the material world? Maybe a, a blasphemous projection of the human onto the divine? Well, as Christopher West says, you know, it could be and would be if it did not flow from a biblical vision of Eros liberated from lust and from a deep well of respect and awe before what but the mystery of the incarnation. Herein lies the scandal of the Christian claim. God reveals his divine love through a human heart. We can properly say the most sacred heart of Jesus, the Christ, the God-man. In other words, God reveals divine love through human love. And it is only from within the logic of the incarnation that Benedict can declare so profoundly and yet so simply that God's love may certainly be called eros. Yet, as Benedict himself says, pressing yet again into the unity of the divine and human natures of Christ without blurring the distinction, it is also totally agape. This is what, my dear friends, marks the path of sanctification for Christian men and women. Eros, through a progressive growth in holiness, must come more and more to express agape. And this is the path not only for spouses, but for everyone, regardless of vocation. Everyone in the unity of body and soul, as male or female, is called to love as God loves. That is, with an eros that is totally agape. <clears throat> Excuse me. In other words, everyone is called to enter into the dimension of God's love. Everyone as we walk the path of Kronos, is to enter into Kairos, God's time, grace time, that time which forms and informs who we are called to be in the ways in which we offer all that we are back to God. In every way are we called to offer ourselves to God, because in every way is the body united to the soul. And so let us take up the deeper truth concerning the reason why God entered human history, to show us what it means to be the best version of who God is calling us to be in the flesh and in the spirit, in the body 
and in our souls. Amen. Let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.